Chris, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today on what is now our 47th episode. And today, as always, you're joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. We just wanted to put out a quick little message to start with that if you do enjoy these podcast episodes, please feel free to share them around, tell your family and friends about them, take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Jack, tag the bodybuilding dietitians. And if you are ever interested in getting in contact with us in regards to coaching, you can always check out our website, which is www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com. Or alternatively, you can just check out the links in the show notes, or you can just go to any of our Instagram bios. All right, so today we've got an exciting question and answer episode for you, and we're gonna jump straight into the questions today. So this first one was asked by Lawrence, and it says, what is your take on the micronutrients in fruit and vegetables versus meats? So yeah, this is a great question, and one that most people probably don't think of in the sense that I guess when people think of meat, they think of protein. When they think of fruits and vegetables, they think of like vitamins and minerals, etc. But we got to remember that uh, the reasons why fruits and vegetables have um, micronutrients and antioxidants is they serve as a protective mechanism, and that's why the skin of a fruit or vegetable, the well, the skin you can actually eat, is actually highest in those antioxidants because it provides as a protective mechanism against something such as insects, sunlight, etc. Yeah. So in terms of meat, uh, we got to remember that meat is the flesh of an animal and that's where some animals or every animal stores their micronutrients and some areas of the animal may be higher than others. For example, the liver. So the liver is very important for storing, uh, well, acting as a storage capacity for different micronutrients. And for example, one of those will be vitamin A. And in the liver, vitamin A is stored in the active form, um, whereas in fruits and vegetables, it you consume it in the inactive form, which is beta carotene, among some other ones as well. So of course, the vitamins and minerals both play a huge role in both. Well, for an animal, they're going to be essential micronutrients to to be able to function and survive. Whereas for a plant, I guess it's the same same reason they need it to survive as well to an extent. So I'll let Tiara discuss the micronutrient properties of each. Yeah, I think those are some wonderful points that you made. And, you know, people really don't think about that. You know, obviously plants do need antioxidants and anthocyanins and all of these different things in their skin to withstand their environment and to keep growing, right? But if we think about the difference in micronutrients, so there are some similarities and there are some differences. So you will find kind of a cross between vitamins and minerals across both plant and animal products. And that's why some people can follow a completely plant-based diet, you know, and they are live and they're healthy and they're well and they can survive, right? If they do it properly. Uh, But at the same time, we can't disregard the fact that meat will be higher in some nutrients compared to plants and on vice versa, plants will be higher in some nutrients compared to meat. And that's why Jack and I, we aren't vegan. We don't, you know, follow a plant-based diet ourselves. And that's why generally we do recommend a balanced diet that does include, you know, components of both plants and animals, just so you can cover all your bases and get all of your essential nutrients from both, right? 
But if we think about meat, so one of the first thing that comes to mind is iron, in particularly heme iron, because heme iron is the most bioavailable form of iron that we can actually absorb and utilize in the body. Whereas plants will usually have non-heme iron. So things like green leafy vegetables, all of your legumes, they still have a form of iron, but it's just non-heme and it needs to actually be converted into heme iron using a certain nutrient called vitamin C. So that's an antioxidant, which you actually get from plants. But anyway, all right, so meat will be pretty high in heme iron. It's also gonna be pretty high in things like copper, a lot of your B vitamins, in particular vitamin B12, a very, very essential nutrient for cardiovascular health. And then also animal products will also provide essential fatty acids in their most bioavailable form. So in particular, omega-3s, right? Within the DHA and EPA form. Whereas in plants, so eating things like chia seeds and walnuts, you'll still get omega-3s, but you'll get them in the ALA form. So yeah, meat is usually highest in those types of nutrients as well animal products are usually very high in nutrients like calcium because we have to think about what calcium does for the body it helps to build bones within animals and it also helps with muscular contraction so obviously calcium is going to be much higher in animal-based products too because it serves that purpose in the body so yeah those are just a few things obviously meat's going to be very high in creatine too so that's enough about meat. On the other hand, you have plants, right? So plants are going to be very high in, obviously, antioxidants. So that is a very umbrella term, but I guess when we think about the main antioxidants, we are thinking about vitamin C, vitamin A, vitamin E, and then plants also have, you know, these things called anthocyanins within them. So that gives plants their color. So when you think about a plum that is purple, right, that's full of anthocyanins. And anthocyanins can also have antioxidant properties in the body too. But at the same time, our body can also endogenously produce antioxidants itself. So things like superoxide dismutase and glutathione, things like that. But Plants will also be very high in B vitamins too. In particular, whole grains will be very high in B vitamins. Plants will also be high in fiber and you will not find any fiber in meat. And the reason for that is because when we think about fiber and undigestible starch and resistant starch, the plants need that in order to survive because if you think about a plant growing out of the ground, you know, it has a hard stalk. It needs to stand up and survive against the wind. It needs those types of starches and, you know, that resistance to actually stand up tall. And also the carbohydrates and that resistant starch also provide nutrients for a plant too. But also Jack wants to make the good point that the nutrients within plants is really going to depend on the soil and the environment that they're grown in as well. So yeah, I think this is quite an undervalued point. And let's just compare a blueberry grown in Australia versus one in the US. Essentially, there will be quite a similar macronutrient composition, so carbs, proteins, and fats. But depending on the soil type and how well it's been cared for, there will be quite a big difference in the micronutrient composition. For example, 
vitamin C, which is a very common micronutrient in fruits and vegetables. So even within different soil types in Australia, there have been shown to be quite big differences in micronutrient composition. And a very important one for protein is nitrogen, because we know nitrogen is one of the backbones or very important aspect of protein. And I'm not sure of the correct term, but if you don't keep on refertilizing the soil or renewing it, then that is going to have a great impact on the micronutrient composition because ultimately plants, when they grow, they do take the micronutrients from the soil. Yeah, I think those are such important points to make. And I remember even learning about that in food science, you know, generally wheat is much higher in protein compared to something like rice because they grow wheat in uh, fields that have a higher nitrogen content. And it also just emphasizes the point, guys, that we can't just go off generic numbers like saying, oh, one orange has 100 milligrams of vitamin C. Like, who flipping knows? Like, it is a total mystery. Like, one orange off the tree might have 100 grams of vitamin C, but God knows how much another orange does grown on another farm that either had more rain or less rain or different soil composition. Who knows? But yeah, I guess those are the main differences between plants and animals. But again, Jack and I just want to emphasize that, you know, unless you follow a very strict plant-based diet, which there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but if you don't follow that sort of dietary pattern, then in order to ensure that you are consuming all of your essential vitamins and minerals, it might be best to make sure you're eating from a wide variety of foods that include both plant-based foods and animal-based foods because they both certainly have their place in the diet. They're both certainly very nutritious and provide essential nutrients that we need. And also animals just have certain nutrients that you can't get from plants and plants have certain nutrients that you can't get from animals. So a little bit of both is probably going to have you in the healthiest spot possible, I would say. Yeah, that can be quite a controversial topic, but... <laughs> Yeah, that's what the Australian Dietary Guidelines recommend, is to consume various amounts from each food group. Mm -hmm. So the next question is quite an interesting one, and it states, I'm holding onto a lot of water and fluid retention. What can I do to get rid of water retention? Now, this is such a good question that we can probably all relate to at some point or another, because, you know, sometimes we might say, man, I'm just holding a lot of fluid, or I feel like I'm retaining a lot of water. So water retention and fluid retention is a real thing. And in medical terms, it's known as edema. But there can be a lot of reasons why you do retain more fluid. And one of them actually might be because you've exercised recently. So when you exercise, for the next 10 to 48 hours, your body might produce more antidiuretic hormone. And we spoke about this a few weeks ago in another podcast, but Antidiuretic hormone is produced by the hypothalamus in your brain from and also from the posterior pituitary gland and it goes down to your kidneys and it actually helps with water reabsorption and that's hence why it's called antidiuretic hormone because and diuretic makes you pee more, antidiuretic would help you retain more fluid. So the reason why you actually produce more of this hormone following exercise is because, you know, usually when we're exercising, we are sweating quite a bit. And also we just need more fluid retention because we need to drop our core body temperature too. And also fluid really helps with recovery. 
And uh, yeah, so your body will naturally produce a little bit more of this hormone. So you will actually retain a little bit more fluid following exercise. So yeah, another important factor is also your electrolyte balance. And like three of the important electrolytes are sodium, potassium, magnesium. And we do definitely always associate extra or more sodium than usual with water retention. And that's because if you, let's say you go out to dinner, you have like fries, obviously they're covered in salt and that's more sodium than you're used to. So essentially water follows sodium. So if you have more sodium one day, you'll accumulate more water to basically try and even out that extra sodium in the body. And this is where potassium also comes into play as well. So if you eat more fruits and vegetables, which are very high in potassium, that'll enforce the excretion of sodium as well. Yeah, that's a really important point to make. And again, you're obviously your electrolyte balance can be influenced by things, especially diet and also exercise too. So if you're exercising a lot, you will lose electrolytes through the sweat. So exercise can kind of go either way too. Like you can actually find that you're dehydrated and uh, you actually might wake up in the morning, you might feel a little bit dizzy, but you'll also be lighter on the scale. Or again, hormonally, you'll feel very thirsty, you'll drink more water, you'll retain more of that water. And uh, yeah, you might weigh a little bit more. So let's actually address the question and say, how can you get rid of water retention? So the big one, I guess, as we said, is consuming, making sure you're consuming fruits and vegetables for that potassium intake. And to be honest, a lot of it will just be time really and just waiting for it to subside, making sure you are doing those, the normal things that are correct. So consuming adequate water, consuming fruits and vegetables, um, consuming the amount of food that's necessary for you, whether you're in a maintenance, um, increasing weight or decreasing body weight as well. And yeah, I think those are the major important things really. Yeah, definitely. It's really just getting the body back to, you know, that homeostatic level, feeling comfortable with your normal daily intake. And I know it does sound counterintuitive, but probably like Jack said, to reduce water retention, sometimes you just need to drink more water. But there are a heck of a lot of reasons why you might retain water. Obviously, females menstrual cycles, there might be a week in there where you retain a little bit more water. Uh, if you're sitting on a plane, you know, um, we all know what it's like to sit on a plane for like 14 hours straight and get a bit of fluid retention and edema in our legs. And I think the reason behind that is, please, someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's because of the cabin pressure. And if there's pressure around us, I'm pretty sure it causes vasoconstriction. And there's like the, the blood flow and the return from our venous return system when our blood is going down to our, uh, our legs and our feet and trying to get pumped back up, I don't think it's as effective, especially if you're sitting down for the entire flight. So that's why you will generally have fluid retention and edema in your legs. That's why it's you know generally recommended that you get up every hour, stretch, walk around on the plane, go pee things like that. But, uh, you know, there are chronic, you know, medical conditions too, where people have issues with their kidneys and their livers, and that can cause a lot of edema as well. But for the general person, you know, just get back to your normal diet, normal way of eating, and just stay adequately hydrated and everything should balance out. All right. So we'll move on to this next question. So this one says, what are your thoughts on dry fasting? And is it too dangerous to use in a mini cut period? Jack, take the floor. <laughs> so this is an interesting question. I'm not sure why anyone would want to dry fast. 
Uh, dry fasting is essentially not drinking water. And yeah, it's definitely not going to provide any benefits at all, really. So water is the most vital component of what you can consume. You, you'll die much faster from dehydration than you will from any other sort of inadequacy in the body. So other than maybe air, <laughs> other than air. Yes. And so, yeah, I'm not, not really sure what this question's about. Um, yeah, so definitely don't do it at all. Um, can't see any benefits from not drinking water. So yeah, that's quite a quick answer really. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We just have to remember that uh, water has no caloric values. So whether like or not you drink it, you're not necessarily reducing the amount of calories you're consuming. And also, you know, there is that, uh, I don't know if I should actually quote this, but I think it's a bit of give or take, but you know, I think other people have heard that you can survive three minutes without air, three days without water, and three weeks without food, give or take, depending on you. Uh, but yeah, I think that you are actually seriously putting your health at risk if you don't drink water and there's absolutely no benefit. There's just a hell of a lot of very dangerous cons. And yeah, please just uh, have a drink. I, it sounds like you'd be very, very thirsty. Have a drink on us. <laughs> have a drink. Nice cold glass of water on, on the bodybuilding dietitians. <laughs> cool. So moving on to the next question. So we actually got two questions related to this and both say pre and post workout meal ideas during prep and recommendations for the best pre and post workout meals and why so jack what's your favorite or best pre and post workout meal so yeah i'm not sure if there's a best one uh, essentially because in nutrition there's it's very difficult to say one thing is better than another like there's always a justification of of why and why not but what are my favorite pre and post workout meals so at the moment i've been having a lot of like a bread based product for pre-workout so usually bagels and I do that because they're very carbohydrate dense and yeah, they don't fill up my stomach very much and provide me with the energy I need for protein with them. I usually lately, I've just been having like peanut butter and banana and then just having chicken on the side, which is, which I've been liking. And uh, we just went to Woolworths yesterday and they actually ran out of the normal bagels. So now Jack, uh, he had to buy blueberry bagels. So he's today going to have to put chicken on a blueberry bagel. <laughs> mm. Or I might just go for the peanut butter in that case. But that's that. That's pre-workout. For post-workout, I usually have um, something pretty simple like a microwave protein cake just with like flour, protein powder. Um, I usually add some olive oil in there as well. And yeah, pretty, I eat very simply and yeah, just try to probably the hardest thing of my diet is just getting enough carbohydrates whilst, well, it's not particularly hard for me, but getting enough carbohydrates while still hitting the protein and fat ratio. So just have to choose very high carbohydrate foods with minimal um, fat really. Yeah, and your pre and post workout meals, I think both of ours have definitely changed over the years. You know, we've gone through a lot of different phases depending on mm -hmm. what types of foods we're enjoying at that time or like depending on whether or not we're dieting or in your case, you're extremely bulking. <laughs> yeah, I remember a couple of years ago, I used to um, pour quick oats into a protein shaker with protein powder. And then at the end of each workout, I'd just chug it 
And like, that was, that was only because like, I was still in that phase of, um, needing to consume something right after my workout. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember when Jack, uh, Jack used to buy that skim milk powder and oh. he would just put powder with this oats and protein, just shake it up. And we actually had to learn to um, use quick oats instead of whole oats. Cause we were walking home from the gym one time and Jack was trying to chug this thing down and nearly choked on like, these big fat oats. <laughs> Oh, Death so funny. Oats. Oh, I even remember when Jack and I first met, he used to make this thing with just like white pasta. And then when the pasta was cooked and hot, he'd just crack raw eggs into it and then just like put ketchup in it and like mix that yeah, around. No, pizza sauce, not <laughs> oh, ketchup. I'm There's sorry. a big difference. Okay. <laughs> My mistake, pizza sauce. But um, yes, we've been through many, many phases, even the cake batter drinking phase. But uh. <laughs> But I guess the main thing, yeah, Jack and I just always look to get, you know, a good protein component and at least a good carbohydrate component and a little bit of fat in a pre and post workout meal. So like protein anywhere between probably 25 to 40 grams is fine. Carbohydrates are highly going to depend on your personal intake, Could probably be anywhere between like, uh, like 30 grams to 150 grams or who knows. And then fats, I think the fats are definitely important to have in a pre-workout meal because you know fats help to slow down the absorption of some of those carbohydrates just so that you can have longer lasting energy and it might be smart you know to go for a more whole grain carbohydrate source pre-workout so something you know like oats or something like brown pasta just so you don't have that initial spike in blood glucose and then it comes plummeting back down uh, but I guess, okay, if I had to say my favorite pre-workout meal, which is usually my lunch, um, right now I've usually been having like an egg white omelet with one egg. I might have like a big thing of cream of wheat. So that's literally just wholemeal flour blended with some cocoa powder, a little bit of sweetener and microwaved. And then I might have an apple with that. So for me, that's a good amount of protein, carbohydrates, and fat. And that just really helps satiate me before my workout. Or sometimes I'll have a big thing of nice cream and a bowl of oats with like some chia seeds in there. Or, you know, I try to mix up the fruit. But again, that's very low in sodium. So if I was to have an egg, I'd put a lot of salt on that. But if I'm having nice cream and oats, I'm not. So I'll take a like a salt shot salt with shot. that. Salt shot. And then post-workout, it's usually always the same for me. It's usually nice cream. So that's literally just protein powder blended with some sort of fruit like banana, pineapple, mango, and some ice and a little bit of water. And then I usually have a bowl of oats or a bowl of, again, cream wheat. So yeah, protein. People probably think we don't eat any veggies. Oh, we, oh, we, all, we eat lots of vegetables just at nighttime. I used to make the mistake of eating, volumizing the shit out of my food. And I used to eat these huge salads with my oats and my nice cream before a workout. And then like, if you're doing any sort of hip hinge movement, like fricking like an RDL or back extension or something, you, you taste it. it. It comes back up a little bit. And that was never nice having celery in my mouth during my workout. So <laughs> anyway, those are some of our suggestions, but honestly, you can eat whatever the heck you want as long as it makes you feel good. It satiates you, gives you a good amount of energy during your workout. And as long as there's that protein and carbohydrate content, you know, you're sweet to go. All right, so moving on to the next question. This one says, what do you think about people that do eating challenges like Eric the Electric? 
massive overfeedings and then really low cows to try to create a balance. So yeah, this is an interesting one. There certainly haven't been any studies on competitive eaters as far as I'm aware. And thinking, so the question asker wants to know about the physiological aspect and not as so much about the emotional aspect, um, which we know that doing this sorts of stuff will ultimately result in disordered eating tendencies because it definitely is not normal to massively overconsume calories and then um, basically restrict yourself, which is basically called a binge and restrict cycle, which people with binge eating disorders do basically. They either, they eat an extraordinary amount of food, then they restrict by either not eating or they over-exercise and stuff like that. So it is, a, it is interesting how this will affect the body. And to be honest, we don't have a that much of an accurate idea of how it will affect the body because it might depend on like the different foods you consume, like um, how your body responds to it, um, etc. Like you could eat something that's very, very voluminous or not as voluminous. But like, let's give an example of something that's very high in fat. Like you're if you eat like 10,000 calories worth of that, like it's, you're not going to absorb all of it. You'll basically have steatorrhea, which is basically fatty diarrhea, where you basically just poo out excess fat and it looks, yeah, it's not very nice, but not very nice. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, other aspects that we can consider as well. Like if you're eating, eating that much food, I know like who Eric the electric is and like, it's kind of crazy how much he eats, but like that's undoubtedly going to stretch your stomach and Eric has, has admitted himself, I think I followed him for a little bit a while ago, that he does have very disordered eating and he is always hungry 100% of the time. And, and like that's undoubtedly because he has been doing these eating challenges. Your stomach does have, have stretch receptors. So when your stomach is stretched, it signals to you that it's full. And for someone like Eric, who has undoubtedly has a very stretched stomach, those hunger cues would be very, very mixed up. And we've got to think about like pancreatic enzymes as well. Personally, I don't think that your body produces enough to digest and absorb all the food that he is eating. And we don't know, like Tierra made a good point about the enzymes as well that. Yeah, so it's actually up in the air whether or not, you know, you would actually overproduce these enzymes. So for example, if your body is used to eating a hell of a lot of food, then there would be hyperproduction of pancreatic enzymes in order to break down fats, carbohydrates, protein, and the like. But at the same time, you know, we know that the pancreas can go into overdrive and you can have pancreatic failure. So we know that the pancreas has endocrine functions and exocrine functions. So an endocrine hormone, the two main ones released from the pancreas would be insulin and glucagon. These are released into the bloodstream, right? In response to food intake and in response to other things as well, of course. But then exocrine hormones are actually released from the pancreas into the small intestine to help break down those foods that you've just consumed. So it is kind of up in the air whether or not you would produce more or less of these hormones, but I would imagine that you know you would be putting a hell of a lot of stress on your pancreas either way, especially if you were just consuming a copious amount of food, in particular, a copious amount of carbohydrates, right? And you have incredibly high blood glucose levels. 
then your pancreas needs to secrete a hell of a lot of insulin to try to get that glucose into your cells. And also, if you have hyperglycemia, that can be very, very damaging for cellular walls and different structures in the body, like your kidneys, like your eyes, like your brain. So having incredibly and chronically high levels of blood glucose can be very, very dangerous and putting that pancreas into overdrive. And sometimes if you put that pancreas into overdrive, you can have pancreatic failure where it's like, not, I'm not doing this anymore. So it just shuts down and it stops producing those hormones and those enzymes. So Jack and I don't really know which way it would go, but um, I would probably say that's probably not the best idea to regularly be doing food challenges and eating just a bucket load of food. Like, and we're talking crazy amounts, okay? We're not talking about going to an all-you-can-eat buffet after your show and enjoying a really big meal till you're stuffed. We're talking about like, Jack, what do some of these food challenge dudes do on YouTube? Like, what's one of the craziest ones you've ever seen? Uh, well, you asked that as if I've watched those videos, but I don't. Um, <laughs> I, I did watch a few back in like 2014 in high school, but... Yeah, like they get the whole Macca's menu or the whole Subway menu or something like that or like the 20,000 calorie day or like, yeah, 48,000 calories in 48 hours or something like that. And it's just ridiculous. Yeah, or they'll eat like a five kilogram steak or just like something absolutely absurd. And you're like, how? But uh, But yeah, other than physiologically, I can definitely imagine it would have a huge mental aspect, just as anyone who's possibly gone through, you know, a binge eating cycle during their life, they can completely relate to this, that it's, it's very, very mental. It's a huge mental battle, right? And once you get used to eating that volume of food, there's so many different things that play a role in it, especially, you know, the stretch receptors in your stomach, because you just never feel satisfied and you always want to eat that huge copious volume of food, but also you're just never satiated and you're always just like, oh, I kind of want more. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a slippery slope, that's for sure. Mm, it certainly is tough. And yeah, someone like Eric, I, I was looking on his profile earlier. He's called Eric the Electric on Instagram, but he does frequently admit that he, he does struggle a lot. So mm. yeah, they can put up like a warning on the videos, like do not try this at home. <laughs> But moving on to the next question, this one is basically about our training styles and how we train. So for example, do we do different blocks of like strength, hypertrophy, supersets? Uh, do we, what's basically our frequency, our muscle group pairings? What do you have like a foundation of traditional exercises? Um, for example, like do we incorporate unilateral movements, stability, um, functional training, all that sort of stuff. So I guess this is a good opportunity to kind of discuss our training philosophy and how we how we see training and i'll let tira kick it off but i i'll just start by saying that we sort of look at training the same way as we look at nutrition which is very evidence-based like we'd need a very good reason for doing something or not doing something and a lot of it will come down to our own experience anecdotal experiences as well um, which for us is justification enough but it still needs to be backed by some sort of reasoning like it can't be for example, a supersets. Personally, I'm not a fan of supersets. And 
That's just because sure, they feel great. They give you a great pump, but how do they correlate to increased muscle growth? Like we know that the pump and metabolic stress is one aspect to muscle growth, but it's very difficult to track them. Like how do you track progression in a superset? And also it kind of doesn't factor in the, the mechanical tension, which is the primary driver of hypertrophy. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that there's so many things to take into consideration when you're designing a training program and don't seek perfection because you'll never, never achieve it, you know, just seek to progress. And it is important, I think, to do trial and error and find out what works best for you and never from the get go or never really ever become married to a certain belief or a certain exercise or a certain training program because, you know, you need to stay open minded with these things. But you know, just off the bat, the most important things to take into consideration are your time schedule. Realistically, how many days can you actually train a week? So don't set yourself up for a training program that's six days a week if you can only train four because immediately you already can't commit to the plan. You have to think about your primary physique goals. So is there a certain area that you need to build, you know, and really bring up? Like, if your legs are a real strong point for you, you don't necessarily need to train them more often than your upper body, that sort of thing. But, or like if you have a really strong chest, you know, dedicate more volume towards your back, those sorts of things. And then also you need training that you enjoy, training that helps you stay injury free and allows you to recover. And then obviously you need to put what the evidence that we have right now. So doing between 10 to 20 sets per week per muscle group can usually you know, help with optimum growth. Sometimes you can go a little bit above that depending on the muscle group, depending on the individual. You also wanna hit a muscle group at least twice per week in order to see growth and development in that muscle group. So those are pretty much the fundamentals when I think about designing a training program for someone. Yeah, definitely. And both of our programs are based off that. And in terms of like our, I guess the blocks that we follow, so like strength hypertrophy and also our exercise selections, like we definitely do more go for the pure hypertrophy exercises. And I say that as in like, there's still strength exercises, but we don't do like bouncing on a BOSU ball or Pilates ball, like while shoulder pressing or whatever, um, or like ladder runs. And truth is that we're just not that coordinated and we'd get very hurt, especially me. <laughs> but yeah, we stick to our compound exercises at the start of a workout and then go into more accessory based lifts. And yeah, basically we follow progressive overload. So we try and get, uh, follow some sort of progression over time, whether it be sets, reps and load. Obviously load is the one you want to be increasing. Like in a year's time, you want to be bench pressing more than you were um, now. And yeah, in terms of our exercise selection as well, uh, we, yeah, we incorporate unilateral as well as bilateral movements. And yeah, I think that covers pretty much everything really. So yeah, in terms of what I do, I follow around probably more like 15 to 20 sets per week for each muscle group. Um, I do three upper body days, two lower body days. And so I basically try and hit all my upper body muscles at least three times a week. Um, my back, I hit probably even five days a week because of my leg days as well. And I do that because back is my weakest point. Uh, while doing that, I can probably handle probably more volume than other people because literally Tia and I set up our lives to train and recover, which we're very fortunate to be able to do. So 
yeah, we get awesome sleep. We um, eat really well. While when we're not training, we're doing what we're doing now. We're podcasting or something similar. Um, we don't have a very active job. So yeah, we are very fortunate that we can do what we do. And that undoubtedly has a massive role in recovery compared to someone like a, like a tradie who might be working in the sun all day, might be carrying bricks or cement or whatever. And yeah, even, even someone like a doctor who's walking around the hospital, um, constantly interacting with people and stuff like that, or walking upstairs, it really does get to you over time or even being on the sales floor. So yeah. It's like eat, train, sleep, podcast, coach comp prep clients. It's a good life right now. Uh, it's nice. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I guess in terms of my training, you know, I think we talked about this a few podcast episodes ago, but I train five days a week. I do three full lower body sessions and two full upper body sessions. And I just find that I can recover really well from that. I rarely ever get sore. Uh, I just have a very high recovery capacity and I can take on a lot of volume and I, you know, that's definitely accumulated over the years and I've gotten more used to that just because I've been involved with sports my entire life and I've always been very active. So I think my body's just gotten used to a high, you know, a high recovery rate, but yeah, training, especially as a girl doing two full upper body sessions per week. I just find that works so well for me because I get in such good quality volume. So instead of doing something like, instead of doing like one day specific just for pushing movements and then one day specific just for pulling movements, I find that combining them together, you know, I can get much better quality volume over the week. Recovery's even better. And I'm just not gassed in a certain muscle group by the end of a workout. So most of my upper body sessions, you know, I'll do one horizontal push, one horizontal pull, one vertical push and one vertical pull. And then I'll also usually do a bicep and a tricep exercise. And then I'll usually do some lateral raises and some abs. So something like that, you know, might look like a bent over barbell row. And then I will do a dumbbell shoulder press. Then I'll do a barbell bench press. Then I'll do a lat pull down and then I'll just do like some hammer curls. I'll do some tricep overhead extensions and some lateral raises. So that covers all my bases. And if I repeat that with different exercises, but similar movement patterns twice per week, that works really, really well for me. And then, yeah, on lower body days, you know, just sticking to like one to two exercises for quads, one to two exercises for hamstrings, one to two for glutes, do some calves in there. You know, that just works really, really well, I find. And uh, yeah, I love it, to be honest. It's um, it's pretty good. But, you know, again, a plan is flexible. So across mesocycles, different exercises are going to change. But I think just paying attention to everything, finding what works for you, and meticulously tracking your training, whether that's written in a logbook, on an Excel spreadsheet, however you want to do it, you need to pay attention to those numbers and make sure that you are progressing in some way or another if you really want to take this seriously and you actually want to see a change in your body composition. Yeah, and that's something we've actually experienced with our clients. Like as soon as they, or as we start tracking with them, they track all their variables that we ask them to do. They start experiencing lots more unprecedented development in their body and their behavior with food as well because yeah, it's just a different outlook for them, new stimulus on the body, and it's it's just a very effective way of doing things. Yeah, there's honestly nothing better when, you know, someone's like, man, I've been training for six years, but 
we've only been working together for six weeks and I'm finally seeing more development in my quads and my shoulders, you know, just because you're finally providing progressive overload to their training. It was just that, that little missing key, right? So we're gonna finish on our last question for the day. And this one says, signs that you should stop your prep. Jack, what are some signs that you should just say, nah, we shouldn't do this anymore? So I think the important thing is to ask yourself why you're doing this prep. And if you are truly enjoying it or if you will enjoy the outcome. So there are gonna be points in a prep where it's gonna be difficult. And I don't think judging whether you should finish or not should be based on that aspect entirely because in order to achieve that goal of stepping on stage, it is going to be tough regardless of who you are. And for some people, it will be more tough than others. But I think asking yourself why you're doing it is a big one. So for example, if you're doing it because you saw some people, I don't know, on social media who looked really good and you want to look like that as well, that's probably not the best way of doing it or of why you're doing it. But if you're doing it because you're competitive and you want to experience something new or if you want to transform your body or something like that and you've really put in the um, background work so you've started at a good point you haven't just chosen 15 weeks out to randomly choose a coach and do it or if you haven't done any sort of background work with like nutrition and counting macros and having a structured training program then it's probably not the best time for you to compete and yeah so i'll just look at your circumstances and assess how much experience you have, um, what position you are in financially, emotionally, physically, you're going through a tough family time, have you had injuries um, recently, all those things sort of add up. But I do think it just comes down to like, is this really worthwhile for you and does it really fit in with who you are? What do you think, Tierra? Yeah, honestly, I couldn't agree more, especially just emphasizing that comp prep is a choice and it's not necessarily a choice you have to make in order to you know feel worthy of fitting in or you know to feel fit or to feel healthy because sometimes in the deep depths of comp prep you are not the healthiest person on this planet all right and you're probably not the most sane either so we have to remember that comp prep is an extreme when it comes to being in the fitness industry, all right? And if you wanna give yourself a challenge and if you wanna get in shape or something like that, even if you feel like you need a deadline, you don't necessarily need to do a comp prep. You can, you could book yourself a photo shoot on the beach, you know, and try to work for the next 20 weeks towards doing a photo shoot, but you don't necessarily need to hop on stage. So never feel as though, you know, it's mandatory or that, you know, you're feeling like you have to do it in order to gain some sort of self-worth because, you know, it's just not. It's, it's a choice that I think that you should make well in advance at a point in your life where you know that you can control a lot of other variables around you and it's it's going to be the best time you can possibly have given the circumstances but i guess signs that you should probably stop a comp prep is one if you are really really not enjoying it you know you just you don't like how you're feeling at all you have no drive to train if you find yourself that you're actually you're not following the plan if you're not actually sticking to your your nutrition if you're not attending the gym if you're not fully in it 100 percent i wouldn't do it you know I, I wouldn't do it i would only commit to a comp prep if i was 110 percent 
committed. Otherwise, what are you doing it for? But at the same time, obviously, sometimes life just happens, you know, like you could have this perfectly mapped out comp prep in mind for years in advance and finally you start doing it and then something just happens, you know, like you lose your visa and you have to move back overseas or someone dies or your house sets on fire or something just catastrophic happens and you're like, whoa, maybe right now isn't the best time to hop on a bodybuilding stage. So it's important to remember that the stage is always going to be there. There's no rush, all right? You need to make the right decision and choose at the right time in order to compete. But yeah, main things would just be life circumstance. If you truly, truly cannot do it, if your heart just isn't in it, and also if your health is majorly at risk. So that is mental health. So if your relationship with food just goes completely out the window and you find that you're having immense cravings or you're giving into, you know, binge purge cycles, I think that's a huge sign that, you know, this is not a healthy thing for you to do because it's really going to influence your long-term health. Jack, can you think of anything else? So yeah, there's a whole list of other things as well. So like um, family situations, if you, uh, again, it will depend so much on the individual, but let's say, I don't know, your brother or your parents come to visit from another country. It might not be the best time for you if you've recently had children and you need to look after them. If one of your family members members becomes ill, if it's difficult financially for you, if you um, need to choose between your family and your comp prep financially, then um, that's good. That's again, a decision you need to contemplate. And yeah, because competing is not cheap. You got to Think about coaching, all the um, travel, the comp prep, um, federations itself, um, tanning, makeup, um, attire, all that stuff. And it definitely adds up. And I think Tira made very valid points as well. Your health, your emotional and your physical health as well. But I think we covered most of our bases there. What would you say for someone who, let's say that they were in a 20-week prep, right? And they've signed up with a coach who isn't necessarily providing the best practices, right? And for the first 10 weeks, they've just been doing a lot of drastic things in terms of nutrition, in terms of training, and they're really not in a good state, but they still have 10 weeks to go and they wanna find another coach. What would you say in that case? I would say it's if any sort of coach is giving you what you think is wrong practice and compromising your health, then I would yeah get out of there straight away to be honest and try and find a more suitable person or people and yeah there's definitely no harm in if he's compromised or she's compromising your health then don't I wouldn't worry too much about what they think just get out of there and seek the advice of someone else and then they can decide whether or not it's still going to be okay for you to continue competing or whether getting your health back in order should be the priority so yeah fantastic all right, guys, so that was our last question of the day. And now we're going to finish on our last little segment of the podcast, which is one thing that we learned this week. So Jack, what have you learned in the past few days? So what I learned is just not to sweat the small stuff. And in my case, this comes to my toe, which if you didn't listen to the last episode, I dropped a couch on while I was moving. And for the first week, it was pretty disgusting, to be honest, like it was very swollen very weepy 
And I sort of, I'm not a big fan of taking painkillers and Nurofen more because they're not very good for your gastrointestinal system. And yeah, I just don't, I'm not a big fan of them in general. Um, also due to the microbiome as well, they're not very, they're quite detrimental to that as well as antibiotics. But I ended up taking some Nurofen and because Nurofen is an anti-inflammatory liquid, literally in, in like a day, uh, it, the swelling and the pain and yeah, all of that gunk just resolved almost like it was kind of crazy how quick it resolved. And like, yeah, that was just Nurofen for a very short time. And realistically, that's not going to do anything to my digestive system. And sometimes you just got to not worry about stuff like that and choose the priority. Yeah, your toe is definitely looking a little less gnarly now. Thank God. <laughs> if only you guys could see this toe of Jack's. It's uh, it's pretty crazy, but I do thank you because we do have a very nice couch that you put together. So um, <laughs> it was a, it was a little sacrifice. Uh, I think that's something that I learned this week that bush turkeys are cheeky little buggers because Jack and I, we have just moved into our new house about two and a half weeks ago. And we actually have this little garden that was kind of like abandoned before we, uh, before we moved here, but it's got some super fertile soil and it's actually got like sweet potatoes. And now to my knowledge, some carrots growing in it. But right when I like realized that there were carrots growing in it, bush turkeys came out from our yard and they had dug like dug up the garden and they've taken a bunch of our carrots and our sweet potatoes so um now i'm learning that as dietitians we need to compete with the wildlife around here uh but yeah <laughs> jack and i also got those little like mystery garden um pot plant things from woolworths that they were handing out you know like a few weeks ago and now we're growing little things in our house which is super cute and the rocket and the beetroot just shot up this morning, which is so cool. The beetroot is actually like this bright pink little sprout coming out of the dirt. So um, it's pretty cool. Anyway, that's what I learned this week is that if I want to have a garden, I'm going to need to compete with the bush turkeys. Well, when we get our dog, she'll be great protection for you. Oh, yes. We'll have a guard dog against the turkeys. I swear if Australian turkeys were bigger, I would eat them. Like <laughs> being from North America, the turkeys there are huge and delicious. Uh, it's like eating an ibis though. All the crap I know. that they eat. Yeah, they, they eat garbage and my carrots. Um, but they have the puniest little legs. I'm like, I can't eat that. That's not a turkey leg. That's just, yeah. Anyway. Jack, <laughs> all done this podcast day. <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you for listening, guys. If you enjoyed the episode, please remember to repost it to your stories, tag myself, tag Tierra, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we'll see you in the next one.